God dag. Hello everyone. Welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. I'm Chris and I'm Elsa. And this is episode 3, Stones Farming and Goats. Three things any respectable country needs, right? Certainly, and if you've ever played any computer game like Age of Empires or a similar strategy-based game, three things you definitely need to get your hands on early on if you want to grow your little empire or even little country like Sweden. Oh really, how important are the goats in those computer games? Well, goats or sheep, I guess, they're pretty important. In Age of Empires, you could actually even capture other people's sheep with their the priests. They go, woolaloo, and go over and turn them into your sheep and take them back to your little village. So they're quite important. Okay, <laughs> I really didn't know that. Last time, we saw how Sweden got its hands on at least the first of these things with the beginning of the Stone Age. Sweden had emerged from its long icy period to reach an average of 20 degrees in July by the time our current period begins in roughly 4500 BCE, so over 6000 years ago. Yes, we're now entering the New Stone Age, or the Neolithic period. It's a period of monumental change, both literally and figuratively, for Sweden, its landscape, geography, and its people. The adoption of farming and a few cultural changes are going to develop society massively, making Bekerskogskvinnan, who we met in the last episode, look quite out of date by comparison. But before we get into the Neolithic period, it is time for our Swedish phrase. Chris, shall I pick one this time, as you got to choose Turi Uturen last time? Yes, please. Great. Well, I'm going to choose the phrase skita i det blå skåpet. It literally means poop in the blue cupboard. Yeah, I know. It's used when someone has gone too far and or made a fool of himself or herself. Like you're a kid and you're having a party when your parents were away and then you hear them come back early. Then you've skitit i det blå skåpet. Assuming you've still made a massive mess and they catch you in the act. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whether literally or figuratively, you've pooped in the blue cupboard, you've made a fool of yourself. No one quite knows where the phrase comes from, but it's thought to maybe originate from how in the 1800s, Nice cupboards for storage of linen and tablecloths were often painted blue. So you shouldn't defecate where the nice things are and make a fool of yourself, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting that they're blue. Uh, I need to remember that phrase, I think. It's a good one, isn't it? I like it, but maybe that's because I'm so silly. Either way, that was our Swedish phrase of the week, and now it's time to go back to the Neolithic period. What shall we start with? Well, we're going to go back 6,000 years, and Sweden has started to get a more settled population. The hunter-gatherer lifestyle of the Swedes we met in the last episode is now slowly making way for a life where people are settling in farming communities, with fields where they grow crops and animals that they keep as livestock. And of course, just like last week, these people don't call themselves Swedes, they're not one people yet, they're nowhere near that, but they are using the same techniques to survive, Although, as we'll see, there's some argument about how and why they started to farm. And farming is a major revolution. As we'll see, it has an impact on so many aspects of people's lives and the very nature of the society they lived in. 
Indeed, and it's not just in Sweden where a transition from the hunter-gatherer communities to settled populations and farming is ushering in a new era of history. This is happening across Europe and many other parts of the world. But it's not really happening at the same time, because the difference between 6,000 years ago and 6,500 years ago, well, that's 500 years, but it's so long ago that it can feel like this was actually happening at the same time. The 500 years seem really short, if that makes sense. And the main thing to remember is this transition takes place across many, many years. But there's some debate about how and why this transition took place, isn't there? Yes, at least in the Swedish context. It used to be believed that the ideas of farming reached Scandinavia, probably through immigration and word of mouth, and then the people who were hunter-gatherers caught on with these ideas and settled down to a life of farming. A bit like if some hunter came back to his group and said, Hey guys, I met some people in the forest today and they were talking about this new trend called farming, where you live in one place and plant stuff and keep animals in a pen next to your house. Shall we give it a try? Was that how it happened? Very simplified and maybe not in that weird accent, but uh, yes. However, archaeologists and historians now think it's much more likely that people who were already farmers emigrated to Sweden, probably from what's today northern Germany, and just continued their farming lifestyle in their new home. And then over time, this new farming community overtook the hunter-gatherer community because they were just more successful at living and surviving, although the two groups would have coexisted during a period too. Okay, so rather than the same people switching from hunting to farming, it was a case that some people were hunters, some people were farmers, and over time the farming took over. Yeah, basically. Obviously there would have been some mix, but that's the general trend. And the farming taking over bit is all happening around 4000 BCE, so they've been practicing it for quite a while before it finally takes over. And it should be mentioned that even though farming was probably introduced to Sweden from what is today Germany, European farming in general is thought to originate from Greece and Turkey, where it's been going on for thousands of years before it reached as far north as the shores of the Baltic Sea. Farming wasn't just slow to reach present-day Sweden, but it also didn't take hold across the whole country at first. Archaeologists have noticed a difference between coastal areas and the inland areas, and in those inland areas, farming took hold earlier, whereas the coastal areas, people there continue to mainly live off seal hunting and fishing for a lot longer. There's an article in the Journal of World Prehistory called The Stone Age of Northern Scandinavia, a review, and that talks a lot about this. For context, when they're talking about Northern Scandinavia, they're talking about everything north of Blekinge and Skåne in Sweden. So when you see a map, uh, if you see that slight bulge at the bottom of modern day Sweden, cut that off and then Northern Scandinavia would be anything north of that. Sounds dramatic. Cut off the lumpy bit and everything north of that. (laughs) Yeah. The article in the Journal of World Prehistory says this. Agriculture was tried in the most southerly areas of the north in the early Neolithic, but seems to have disappeared or been absorbed into the much more successful local hunting-fishing type of adaptations, apart from a few areas in central Sweden where the conditions for agriculture were particularly favourable. A full-scale agricultural economy was first introduced almost a thousand years later at the end of the Middle Neolithic. 
At this time, changes can be seen in the location of settlements, social organization, and material culture. End quote. So the fundamental changes really are about how societies relate to their settlement and material culture because of this difference in location and things happening in different places at different times. But it's important to realise that Neolithic farming isn't just plonk down your farm and I'm a farmer now. It's, It's quite different to how you would do farming in southern Sweden today. Neolithic farming involved clearing forest land, so you would come up to the forest and decide where you want to farm, and then it usually starts by what is called slash and burn. As it suggests, you start by chopping everything down, then letting it dry out in the clearing that you've created. Then, right before it's about to rain a load in the rainy season, you set it all on fire. Oh! Yep, flames everywhere. Because the rains are just about to come, it turns all this burnt wood and flames into ash, and so you've got this ready-made fertiliser layer of ash around, which is great at producing food and helps eliminate pests and weeds. So you've got this ready-made flat-pack farming area for you to use and get going with. Then you can plant all your crops, keep your animals and cattle there, your sheep and your goat, to live and plough your farm with simple tools. You've even got some of the animals that are more domesticated, so you can turn them into your animal slaves, like the uh, oxen who would be pulling your ploughs. Yeah, but you can imagine, with all that burning, it's quite an invasive and intensive method of farming, and after a few years, if you do this a lot... You really do tire the earth out. Aw, poor soil. Yeah, it really is poor soil. The soil gets exhausted and the productivity of the land decreases. So after a while, you have to move to a new part of the forest and repeat the whole process over again. Yeah, that's a bit of a shame, as it's really a big effort for everyone to do this. And so, whilst society is beginning to become more settled, moving every five years or so, they're still partly nomadic, as they're really abusing their land, which is a real shame. So, apart from just changing where they were physically living, you could say that the introduction of farming changed a bit more, didn't it, Orsa? Yeah, as we said earlier, it changed the very nature of people's lives. Lars Sundström, who is an archaeologist at the Societas Archaeologica Uppsaliensis. Now that's Latin, so I'm very sorry for my pronunciation, uh, but they're based in Uppsala. And Uppsala is one of the big universities in Sweden. It's like uh, Harvard, Oxford or Cambridge, something like that. Yeah, it will certainly get mentioned when we quote historians and scientists across the podcast as they are the dominant academic force in the country. Lund would have something to say about that. One of two. (laughs) One of two. In modern-day Sweden, Lund, as we'll see, will be Danish for much of uh, history. Anyway, Lars Sundström raises the point that the introduction of farming changed the way people thought around the concept of ownership. The theory goes, if you settle down and start farming, then that's an investment. You cultivate your field, you have your cattle that you need to grow before you slaughter them, or that takes time before they grow wool if they're sheep, etc. All of that is an investment. So you want to make sure it's yours when it's ready. And that means you introduce the concept of ownership. 
Yeah, because it's thought that on the contrary, in hunter-gatherer communities, everyone was more mobile and needed to share everything the community had to survive. And so ownership wasn't really a thing. It was the group's axe or the group's animal they were going to kill. Yeah, pretty much. If you're not investing time and effort over time by staying in the same place, it means you're less fussed with who owns what. But with the investment in time and resources that the introduction of farming and settled communities bring about, a new way of thinking around owning develops. Historians theorize that this has an impact on the concept of family as well. In hunter-gatherer communities, relationships could be more fluent and which kid belonged to what parent was less important. It was the group as a whole that mattered. However, in settled farming communities, because of the idea of ownership and property, and by extension inheritance, the need to control relationships became greater. It's during this time that we see the introduction of relationships between couples, like marriage being about lifelong partnership and about combining two lots of property. And also, there's a greater need to clearly set out what child belongs to which parent. Or really, if we're honest here, it's really about which man has fathered what child, since that has an impact on ownership and inheritance. And so thus, the long and harrowing need to control female sexuality was born, it seemed. Yay! Indeed, that's uh, not very good at all. This is obviously in audio format, so you can't see the sad face I have on. Yes, also is upset, and rightly so, as this really is an all-encompassing societal shift we see in this period. It's really going to be fundamentally changing how society functions on a day-to-day basis. In fact, you can also see how this wasn't the only aspect of dividing society into gender roles that began now. The farming and ploughing with oxen we mentioned earlier, well, you guessed it, it was just the men that got to do that because it was fun, and riding the oxen and whipping the oxen and doing all the manly roles were kept to the men. So you can really see how the farming didn't just add grains to the early Swedes' diet, ownership that came with it also brings in a much darker side of the time as not only does the separation into clear gender roles begin it also means that warfare is going to spring up between these different groups as a result of competition for land or you've got a much better ox than i have so i'm gonna come and take it or there were even agricultural problems because of all the slashing and burning or you could have overpopulation in some of the hubs of civilization because the great land was there something we haven't really seen before this concept of ownership of land and objects. It it all starts now. Yes, and it's a complex tale, really. Farming really added a lot of these concepts into the lives of the Neolithic people. It was making life easier, but also much harder in different ways. But I also want to mention another important and relatively new discovery about the Swedes in this period. By studying genetics, both in present-day Swedes and in skeletons, scientists have found that Swedes can trace a large part of their genetic heritage from a group known as the Yamnaya. Yes, the Yamnaya. And uh, spoilers, we're jumping a little bit towards the end of the Stone Age with this, but it fits with this whole societal narrative we're talking about now. 
The Yamnaya arrive in Sweden around this time, about 5,000 years ago, so towards the end of the Stone Age, 3,000-3,500 BCE. And they've come all the way from what is today Ukraine. They're mainly young men who move across Europe with all the carts and domestic horses that they can bring with them. They sweep across the continent, and they did this sometimes in a violent way, eradicating existing communities of Stone Age people through violence, but also through the weird, new, and wonderful diseases they brought with them. In fact, in some ways, it was similar to when Europeans arrived in the Americas for the first time. But in Sweden, for some reason, their arrival seems to have been a bit more peaceful than elsewhere. Oh, that's nice to hear. Now, I was fascinated to hear just how much of our DNA can be linked to the Yamnayas. And actually, not just in Sweden. Almost all Northern Europeans have a genetic heritage from them. That's really good, because if you do one of those Ancestry.com DNA tests, you'll probably have some Yamnaya DNA in you. Disclaimer, other DNA tests are available. Yes, I'm sure they are. But perhaps the most important thing that they brought with them was their language. And it's from this period that the Yamnayas brought their amazing Indo-European languages with them. The languages they spoke didn't sound quite like what's spoken in Sweden today, far from it, but it is the root of modern-day Swedish and the Nordic languages that came before it. In, in fact, it's almost all European languages, including English, that have their roots in the Indo-European languages of the Yamnaya. That's amazing! So, in the previous episode we met the first Swedes, and now we're getting the first hint of the Swedish language. There's a lot of things being introduced in this very early stage. But the Yamnayas also brought with them a few other things that I thought was important to mention, namely beer and the gene that means that you can tolerate lactose. So I would like to personally thank the Yamnayas for the fact that I can drink beer and eat cheese, because those are two of my favorite things. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, Yamnayas. Yes, thank you, Yamnayas. I think we should turn that into a badge or a bumper sticker or something. I mean, we really do have a lot to be thankful to the Yamnayas for. But if we're done saying thank you to them for now, I think it would be good to finish this episode by mentioning a few of the things that physically still connects us to the late Stone Age period. Some archaeological finds. So across southern and central Sweden, quite a few objects from this period have been found in archaeological digs scattered all around southern Sweden and Scandinavia. They include ceremonial axes, quite a few of them were shaped a bit like a boat, uh, they had a bit of a thing for boat shapes, because we know how important the boats were for all the fishing and traveling. They were typical for the previously mentioned Yamnayas, and in fact around 300 of those have been found across Scandinavia. So considering they have survived for around 5,000 years, that's quite impressive. Yeah, that's a lot of uh, stone axes and ceremonial axes shaped like a boat. I mean, yeah, to survive that long too is very impressive. In uh, Trorsetra, north of Stockholm, about 300 clay figures resembling humans and animals have been found. And these are around 4,500 years old, so again, they're a bit later on in the Stone Age and perhaps even possibly pushing into the time period where we're getting metals. But still, they're showing what these people thought of themselves and the animals around them. And finally, going back to the early Neolithic, we have perhaps my favourite object. We have the Arlunda moose. 
This is a ceremonial axe and it's quite ornate with a moose head carved into it out of the rock. It's around 20 centimeters long, so two thirds of a ruler, and it's between four and 6,000 years old. And that's one of the things when you look at these periods, even the best scientists and the best techniques can say between four and 6,000 years old. The big time scale. Yeah, that's like the difference between us now and the Romans is sort of is made sometime between now and the Roman period. That would be a crazy long time scale. And it's sort of the same, it's just we look at it as the Stone Age. But the main thing is it's definitely within our time period that we're talking about today. As the name may or may not suggest, it was found in Arlunda, which is a place north of Uppsala, that academic powerhouse we mentioned earlier. But it's actually believed to have come from present-day Finland or Russia. Not just these things that archaeologists have found, but there are also reminders of this early era in our history in the Swedish landscape in the form of graves. Because this era saw the introduction of large burial grounds. You can see Longhögar. In English, I haven't really found a good translation, but it would be something like long heaps. And they're from around 3800 BCE. It looks a little bit like a bread loaf under the earth, making a mound that you can still see around today. They're usually made out of one or two large chambers that have been covered in earth and sometimes with stone. They're quite common in Western Europe at this point and come from the Neolithic age. Yeah, so you basically choose some ground, dig a little hole, put your bodies in it, and then sort of build a bit of a lump on top so you know where it is and come back and say hi to grandma later on. We've also seen the translation of passage graves, as you call them in English, from around 3300 BCE in the Swedish landscape, especially in the area of south-central Sweden around the two big lakes that exist here, Vernon and Vettern. A little later on, we get dolmens, which are basically larger grave chambers, which sometimes have a stone roof on top, using a large block of stone like a roof, and again, they're covered in grass. Not as many of these have been found in Sweden, but there are some remains of them in the south of the country. So even though this period might seem like ages ago, and I mean, it is literally thousands of years ago, we can still see the remains of that time in Sweden today. And not just the physical remains in the forms of axes and graves, but we can still see the effects of the change in lifestyle of what happened in that period. There are still lots of farms in south of Sweden and all over Sweden, really. And whilst not many Swedes are still farmers, as it needs a lot less people nowadays because of all the machinery we have, the fact that people are living in Sweden during this Stone Age period and settled down and began farming really forms the bedrock of what is Sweden today. And speaking of rock, stone tools were used on some of the more substantial rock formations in the country to produce some fascinating rock carvings. We're going to delve a lot deeper into the cultures of the Neolithic Age next week in a bit of a cultural focus type episode, but we should mention these amazing things just briefly now. Yeah, these rock carvings and paintings are mainly of wild animals, boats and other humans. They have been found uh, at 16 places in northern Sweden and have been dated to between 5500 and 4000 BCE. So right in the middle of the Neolithic age of discovery and innovation. The largest and best known is Namfossen in Ongomaland, 
with at least 300 carvings having been found by some rapids that were formerly close to a river mouth. It's really amazing that you can have the scale and depth of the rock carvings when previously there hadn't been anything found. They just appear from nowhere. And over 300 carvings in one place shows a real dedicated effort to making them. But as promised, much more on this next time. Yeah, so that was just a bit of a preview or perhaps a spoiler for next week. But speaking of next week, it is probably a good time to start wrapping up. So this week we saw that it was immigration that brought something new to Sweden that eventually became an integral part of life. That is no doubt something we will see many times during the life of this podcast. Absolutely, because farming changed the way that Swedish people looked at their own objects, at themselves and as a society in a whole. And it also helped change their diet and slowly edged them away from the nomadic lifestyle that they'd had before. It also sadly helped introduce a lot more violence, but it did bring in new animals, so swings and roundabouts. <laughs> and these animals even affected the gender roles, which we discussed previously. All in all, this really helped lay the social and economic basis for Sweden's agricultural life that has lasted well into the 20th century. So uh, that's probably it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Until our next episode, do follow us on Twitter, Podbean, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to us on. And you can also give us a review on iTunes or leave us a rating on Spotify. Yes, please do leave some reviews. Now we're properly up and running. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so using flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. If Twitter or Facebook is more your thing, just search at Flatpack Sweden or the full name of the podcast. And of course, there's also our website, a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com. So until next time, thank you and goodbye. Hey, Dor. Is that the sound it makes? No, whenever you you clicked on the the priest, it would go, There must be a a soundboard for this online. Let me find it. Hopefully some of our listeners recognize uh, Age of Empires. I never played much computer games, so... um... You just played The Sims. (laughs) Yeah. Priest Town. Here we go. There we go. Age of Empires 2. That sounds nothing like the sound you're making. He said, Iolo, and then he said, Wololo. Anyway, we need to move on. That was three minutes of excellent content.